Hampshire isn't intended to be an experiment. It's supposed to be a place where experiments take place. So it's an experimenting college, which means it tries things. And if they succeed, people take notice and other places adapt them. Ken Rosenthal, the interim president of Hampshire College, coming up on In Contrast. I'm Ilan Stavans, and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Ken Rosenthal was one of the founders of Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts. He was a member of the Hampshire administration until 1976 and a member of its board of trustees from 2008 to 2016. In addition to his work for Hampshire, Rosenthal has had a long career in law, business, and with nonprofits. In 2019, Rosenthal was appointed the interim president of Hampshire. It is a pleasure to have you in In Contrast, Ken Rosendahl. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here with you, Ilan. Thank you. I want to start with probably a question that will offer our listeners a sense of where things are. This has been a very tough year for Hampshire College. How did things get to the present situation, and what assessment do you have, having concluded this first year, of what happened? Well, this has been a difficult year for many colleges in New England and across the country, many small private colleges that are like Hampshire College. I was asked to be interim president on April 5th, so I haven't been there very long. And I came after the resignation of our president, Mim Nelson, who had joined Hampshire about nine months before. And I can't speak to how and why we are where we are, but I can tell you where we are and what we are planning to do. And Hampshire is now approaching its 50th anniversary of having admitted students. The first students came to Hampshire in 1970. Hampshire was planned for years before that and is the product, as I think your listeners in the New England area know, of Amherst, Smith, and Mount Holyoke Colleges and the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And as we approach our 50th year, it was always our plan to take a good look at who we are and how we are and what we are doing Because Hampshire College was always supposed to be a place that was very self-conscious about itself, about what it was doing and how. It was created to offer alternatives to higher education to three very strong colleges and a strong state university that were doing very well in the 1960s and had no great reason to change but knew that higher education might need to look at itself and see what it could do better and decided to do that through a vehicle of a brand new college. But when Hampshire was established, its first president, Franklin Patterson, talked about Hampshire as being a series of what he said were successive approximations. In other words, Hampshire College would take the time from time to time to examine itself and see whether it was doing the best it could for its students and for higher education in general. So that time was coming at the 50th anniversary, which will be a year from now. During the course of working up toward that time, Other circumstances in New England, especially in Massachusetts, gave concern to people about the future of small private higher education at colleges like Hampshire, which are not lavishly endowed. Hampshire has a very comfortable endowment of about $53 million or so, and a beautiful campus and extraordinary land, but it depends and has for its entire existence on tuition room and board for most of the revenue that it needs. And so last spring, in the spring of 2018, when Hampshire was a bit surprised to find that its entering class 
in 2018 was going to be smaller than anticipated, I gave some concern to the then administration and trustees of the college. And cycling back to the point that other colleges in Massachusetts were having difficulty, Hampshire wanted to be out front with its publics and with the regulatory agencies and the accrediting agency and let them know that it was expecting a student shortfall and that might be a revenue shortfall in the fall of 2018. Then for reasons that were known to the folks internally at the college, in the winter, in January, Hampshire said that it was seeking a strategic partner and that it was considering whether or not to admit students entering in 2019, this coming fall, and decided on February 1st at a board meeting to say that the college would not accept, except for a few students, would not accept a full class in the fall of 2019 while it considered what it should do to establish that it could guarantee graduation four years hence. And it had already committed itself to some students. In the year before, it had committed itself to students who took a gap year, as my daughter did when she was admitted to Hampshire some years ago. And it had committed to some students at early decision time on December 1st. So Hampshire welcomes those students in the fall of 2019. There will be 15 of them, but it's not going to take a full class. But it is going to take a full class in the fall of 2020. And it was trying to understand exactly what strategic partnership meant and what to do about next fall that set some people to thinking that maybe the college needed to re-express what it intended to do. And the president decided, for reasons that she could explain, that it was time for her to retire. And uh, several trustees did too. And the remaining trustees who voted to continue operation asked me if I would step in as interim president. So I'm doing that now. And my tenure is not going to be very long. We're now searching for a new president. What is your diagnosis as to the reasons, Ken, that small liberal arts colleges in New England of the size and type and scope and ambition that Hampshire has have gone through the challenges that they are facing now, and some of them are closing. What are the economics that are pushing students not to apply there? The reason why in 2018 there was a smaller class than anticipated? How do you explain it? It isn't because people aren't applying. In fact, it's much easier to apply to colleges now than it has been in years. The common application and the reducing of application fees makes it simple and cheap for students to apply to many more colleges than they used to. And the consequence of that is it makes it very difficult for the colleges to know who really wants to come to their particular college. And so for this current year, for instance, we were receiving more applications than Hampshire has received in five years. What happened last year was a question of foreseeability. It was very hard for Hampshire it turned out, to know exactly of those who had applied and said they wanted to come to Hampshire, who in the end would actually come to Hampshire. So predictability is one of the key reasons why colleges are having great difficulty. Hampshire has done some other things that are making it easy for students, but also making it sometimes difficult to explain. For one thing, Hampshire was the first college in the country to say that it would not receive and would not evaluate SAT and ACT scores. Those are the test scores that students in high school take and submit to most colleges. Many colleges make those 
tests optional. But Hampshire did an examination of itself some years ago and found that they didn't tell Hampshire College as much about the students as they'd like to know, and there were other ways to ask students about themselves. So another problem for Hampshire may be, and I think we need to understand this better, that it's a little more complicated to apply to Hampshire College now, and that may mean that some people don't do it. Hampshire College also may have to find better ways to explain to people what it does, because from the beginning, it has been a different place in how it's organized. For instance, and I say this with only a touch of irony, at almost every college in the country, about half the students in that college are in the bottom half of their class. Elon, you teach at Amherst College, an extraordinarily wonderful college, and yet half the students at this extraordinary college are in the bottom half of their class. Not so at Hampshire, and the reason is simple. Hampshire doesn't have class rankings. It doesn't have grades. In that sense, it's much more like a graduate school for undergraduates, and it's much more like the real world for human beings than colleges are. In a sense, and I know some of your listeners may not agree, grading is oversimplification of what a student is doing in class and what a student is doing to study. And at Hampshire, students don't get grades. They get evaluations from faculty members. Trying to explain this may be a complication for Hampshire, and I think it has to look to see whether it's explaining it in the best sort of way. The reason Hampshire has been doing that, and it has been doing that for the five decades it's been in operation, is because Hampshire's approach to pedagogy is very student-centered. Not that other colleges don't focus on the student, too. But at Hampshire, it isn't what the faculty member teaches that's as important. It's what the student wants to learn. And so students, while they take a breadth of courses in their first year or two, toward the end of their career, which Hampshire is in three divisions, so we're talking about now Division Three at Hampshire, which could be a year and a half or so, toward the end of their career, they focus on very specific learning experiences that may be unfamiliar even to faculty members. And so the students invite faculty and other students from Hampshire and other places to sit on committees, just as graduate schools will, to help them plan for how they're going to study and then help them evaluate the success of their learning experience. That, again, is something that is very mature. It's very effective and Hampshire has alums, 11,000 of them, many of whom are very, very successful in what they do, partly because of how Hampshire teaches, and they will say that. But it's also perhaps a difficult thing for Hampshire to express. So that may be a two-sided coin. It's a wonderful way to teach, but it may be a hard thing to tell students this is something that would be something you profit from. Was it a limitation in terms of foresight in looking at the future, the fact that the institution was coming close to its 50th anniversary, and the country had changed, the applications had changed, the needs of younger students going to colleges had changed, the tension between, in higher education, the haves and the have-nots, the, the institutions that have a lot of money in terms of endowments, they have a money that comes from the state or from other sources, and the more vulnerable institutions like Hampshire was it the lack of capacity of maybe the board of trustees, maybe the administrators themselves, or other aspects that did not prevent reaching this point? It's a combination of things, and we can talk about finances, and I hope we will, but we, I also want to talk about the value of a liberal arts education as exemplified by Hampshire, but not only by Hampshire, by other places too. 
in the world that is changing so fast. So that for years, liberal arts colleges have been saying to their students and, and to the parents of prospective students, we're not necessarily giving their students a career that they're going to live with for the rest of their life. We're teaching them how to make inquiry. We're teaching them how to be critical. We're teaching them how to ask questions because the jobs that they are going to be holding over the next decades when they leave our colleges, those jobs, many of them don't even exist now. And all you have to do is look back 20 years to see what different careers are now that didn't exist back then. And we all believe that the speed of change is increasing and the breadth of change is increasing. So while many institutions purport to train their students for careers, most liberal arts colleges like Hampshire and others, like Amherst, for instance, your college, says that we're not teaching them for any particular career. We're teaching them how to adapt to multiple careers. And that's something that's important for Hampshire to do. It's still a very young college. And this is where I want to talk for a minute about the finances. Hampshire, as I said earlier, is dependent on tuition, room, and board for most of its revenue every year. Hampshire has an endowment, and it has had a small endowment since it began, and it receives gifts from alumni and friends and grants from foundations and the government since it's opened, and that continues every year. But its alumni are very young. The average age of the alumni would be about early 40s, which means half of them are, are younger yet. The oldest alums at Hampshire are about 65 and 66 years old. Hampshire alums have told me, I can't give Hampshire a lot of money now, but you're in my will. And we know that, and we don't wish anybody ill, but we know that those funds are going to be forthcoming. And over time, Hampshire is going to be more like other colleges in the money it receives in donations every year from its alumni. And just to give you a little bit of history, when Amherst College was as old as Hampshire College is now, its treasurer was Austin Dickinson, the brother of Emily Dickinson. He had just succeeded his father as treasurer. Stanley King, who was the president of Amherst College, wrote a history of the Amherst College endowment. And he said that at that time when Austin Dickinson was treasurer and Amherst College was about 40 years old, its circumstances were very serious. It was deeply in debt. One year, faculty were paid with farm produce that were donated by local farmers. And Austin Dickinson was paying some of Amherst College's bills out of his own bank account. And folklore says that he almost bankrupted himself in the process. I don't know whether it was that extreme, but he was still making it possible for the college to survive. Now the college is approaching its 200th birthday, and it has an endowment well in, in advance of $2 billion. When Hampshire is mature enough to be receiving gifts from its alumni and bequests from its friends and alumni, it will be much more financially sound. It needs to get to that point. And that's something that Hampshire has known for the last 50 years. We knew Hampshire was going to be an adolescent college until it was old enough not to be. But these days, the finances have been a challenge. Since my coming on board as interim president in April, and since the Hampshire board has now committed itself to being an independent college, it's been extraordinary to me how people have been contributing to the college money that we never expected to receive. And it's also fascinating to me that the media is paying attention to Hampshire College in ways it hadn't before. And that tells me two things. One is that Hampshire is a place of consequence. It's a meaningful place 
And the donations have come from some very usual places and then from some unusual places. I received a check from a person who, as an early academic 50 years ago, was a contributing advisor to Hampshire College. And the message that accompanied his check from this man who's now in his mid-80s is that he had never given $20,000 to any nonprofit before, nor to his college, but he's giving it to Hampshire College. On the other hand, and I sign, I sign thank you letters, and that's how I read these letters. I signed a, a letter from a woman who's a housekeeper in a house in Amherst who had no connection to Hampshire College, and this housekeeper said, I want to support the college in my town, and she sent $50. So those are two examples. The example of the media that I want to point out is that Hampshire is receiving the attention not only of NEPR, the New York Times has written about Hampshire. The Washington Post has written about Hampshire. The Boston Globe has written about Hampshire. We have been on television. And one needs to ask ourselves why this small college in South Amherst is getting such attention. And I think the answer is that the alumni have demonstrated and the other colleges have believed that Hampshire can make a difference in higher education. Another thing I want to point out about Hampshire College is that it's the child of four other colleges, where it is a full partner in five-college cooperation. Amherst, Smith, Mount Holyoke, and UMass are very supportive of Hampshire in some ways that I'll mention in a minute, but Hampshire is supportive of them. So that very early in the first year of Hampshire's existence, and I was treasurer at Hampshire College then, we treasurers concluded that it made no sense to try to estimate what it costs to have a student take a course from another college in the five-college consortium. How do you value a course in poetry and charge a college for that student compared to a course in chemistry in which the expenses are much greater, and how do you charge a college for that? And so at the end of the year, trying to keep records, it turned out that we decided 50 years ago, 49 years ago, that we would not exchange money. So it costs an Amherst College student nothing to take a course at Mount Holyoke. It costs a UMass student nothing to take a course at Hampshire, and it costs a Hampshire student nothing to take a course at Smith. All you have to do is find room in that class for yourself, and then you have to abide by the rules of the campus. So when Hampshire students go to Amherst College, they get graded just like Amherst College students do. And Amherst College professors have told me that some of the best students they've ever had and they've also told me some of the worst students they've ever had have come from Hampshire College. Hampshire faculty hold their own with the faculty of the other colleges because they have joint professorships, they have cooperative professorships, and there's a camaraderie based in academics that is very, very valuable. So I think Hampshire has proven its value to the other colleges just as they have proved their value to Hampshire. You were doing a comparison just a few minutes ago with the 50th anniversary of Amherst College, that is 150 years ago. This is a college that is about to turn 200. And you were describing the economic challenges that it faced. And so I want to go back to that part by asking you about the titanic job that you are having stepping in as an interim president at a moment where, in your own description, there is a transition between maybe childhood to adolescence or maybe from adolescence to a more mature institutional aspect. Yes, Hampshire is an essential component of the five colleges and of intellectual and artistic and creative landscape. 
not only of the Pioneer Valley, but of the entire United States. On the other hand, small colleges, it's a cutthroat Darwinian world where small colleges that can't make it, they can't make it in small donations, will not push them on the other end. What does an interim, the acting president, you, who knows the history of Hampshire so intricately, so intimately, what can somebody like you do to steer the opinion, the emotion, the passion in terms of leadership to make people see that though this is a, a challenging time and we are at a moment where student activism is back at its highest when compared to the 60s and 70s. So the various constituencies are very vocal and very engaged, and they can be vocal with their purses, with their pockets. They can be vocal in taking over buildings as they have at Hampshire today, or they did it in the 60s and 70s. What do you need to do to bring the communities that are all coming together in Hampshire forward? And I want to ask you to relate that to that other question that you presented or that other issue that you presented, and that is that the institution is right now in the process of finding a new permanent president. An institution in crisis can be an institution with extraordinary opportunity, but it's also challenging to bring somebody on a boat that is in the middle of such tempest. Well, there are several answers to the questions you just asked. Let me speak quickly about the successor president, the permanent president who will be coming to Hampshire to replace me. It's fascinating to find that among the people who have expressed an interest in Hampshire College are presidents of other colleges. I can't say more than that, but I can tell you that the spectrum of people who have expressed an interest in being president of Hampshire is wide, varied, and very encouraging. Now, time will tell whether we will find the right person, and I certainly hope we do. But the reason I hear that people are, especially college presidents, are interested in Hampshire is because Hampshire has meant something to them. It's helped them understand how they can be better college presidents at the institutions where they are, and that Hampshire has real possibilities. Hampshire's commitment to social justice and courses in social justice, to environmental sustainability. Two buildings are net zero buildings. By that, I mean two buildings on the Hampshire campus cost the college and the owner of the building nothing to run except a janitor because they produce their own electricity, they collect their own water, they dispose of their own waste, and cost society nothing except we employ somebody to make sure the place is clean. So I predict that this is not only good for Hampshire, but this is the way we're going to be building our buildings in the future, not just on college campuses, but all over the country. In fact, from an environmental point of view, it's the way we have to build our buildings. We have to source the materials properly. We have to make sure that we're causing very little environmental damage when we bring the materials to the location, when we build the building, and when we operate the building. And Hampshire has shown and the Hitchcock Center for the Environment, which is on the Hampshire campus, has shown that this can be done in buildings large and small. So Hampshire has something to contribute to others. The question you asked me about what do I do, we're doing several things at once. We can't do this in series. So we need to reshape the message so that people can understand Hampshire better. I've talked to students at Hampshire soon after I was appointed in April, and I said, are we telling high school juniors and seniors and their parents what Hampshire is really about? Is our message getting through to them? And they unanimously said, no, 
we can help you, and they are helping us to describe ourselves better so that their followers, the, the students just a year or two behind them in high school coming forward, can understand Hampshire better. As a former president of Hampshire College, Chuck Longsworth once said, you don't get any money unless you ask for it. So, of course, that's what we're doing now. We're asking our current donors, and we're asking prospective donors, we're asking people who haven't given money to us in years, and people who may not have given us money at all but are enthusiastic about Hampshire, we're asking them to support us in ways that they never have before. Ken Burns, one of our alumni who is a nationally recognized filmmaker, is the head of the campaign that we are beginning right now to raise the money we need for this year and the next four years. We need to raise between 90 and $100 million in the next five years. We need to raise a total of $20 million from the end of last spring through till June 30th, 2020. And where are you now with that? And we are now meeting our goals through August. And our next big target is December 31st. And, and it's too early to know right now how we're doing, but we're very optimistic. So from April through August, we are on target. It's interesting, Ken, that a permanent president is being sought at this point. Famously, I should say, you are getting $1 for what you're doing for Hampshire. At least that is what I read. And the fact that the standard average salary of a small liberal arts college president, even one that is at a, an economically dire situation, is likely to be between, I guess, and this is sheer speculation, $150,000 to a $1 million. Wouldn't you stay for longer, Ken? That's where my question was going. Well, the truth is I'm getting much more than a dollar a year. I'm getting a dollar a month. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So because the college had trouble writing a check for eight and a half cents every month. This is a benefit to Hampshire right now that they're not having to pay me a large salary, but, but the salary of a president as the salary of faculty and others, that's built into the financial plan for the college. So the president we get will be paid a respectable amount because he or she will be doing what a president does, which is helping the college to operate and raising the money, but doing one other thing that I want to mention. And that gets back to what I said earlier on about Hampshire being very self-conscious about who it is and what it is. Hampshire is going through a process right now led by some faculty members and some trustees and others looking at how it should define itself for the next decade or two, administratively and academically. Hampshire is pretty confident that the student-centered approach to education that we have been using since we opened is the right one. But how you make that work in these days is a question. What the complement of the faculty should be. Hampshire's faculty is an interesting faculty. It's partly because we don't have tenure at Hampshire College. We have contracts that are renewable. Is that a plan that should continue? It's something we have to ask ourselves. The answer probably is yes, but all questions are on the table. Hampshire does not have academic departments, so there aren't a series of small departments, each with a department head. Instead, Hampshire has five schools. When Hampshire opened, it had four schools. And one of the questions on campus now is, should Hampshire revert to its academic model of four schools? Because it was easier to explain what those four schools were back 40 years ago than it is now to explain why there are five schools which have no direct relationship to the distribution requirements that students are asked to make. And is it part of the landscape or the discussion that it could be more traditional, that it would abandon its experimental 
cutting-edge approach. You mentioned the grades, the departments, in order to be able to attract a student that sees her future in a more conventional, traditional way. It might be, and I'm not at this stage early in the process going to predict anything about how this comes out. But Hampshire, you use the word experimental. Hampshire isn't intended to be an experiment. It's supposed to be a place where experiments take place. So it's an experimenting college, which means it tries things, and if they succeed, people take notice and other places adapt them. And one of the things that many places have adapted is no grades for courses. My grandson, who just graduated from high school, told me there's no class rank in his high school because they don't have grade point averages and they don't rank them. So that's sort of a Hampshire College idea that's been adapted in a, a large Pennsylvania high school. So, yes, some of these things can change. Some of them won't. But what we want to do is understand exactly why we're doing everything, keeping the old as well as changing to something new. Perhaps one of the most painful aspects that has happened recently in this very painful period that Hampshire has been going through has been the shrinking of the faculty body and of the administration as well. It generated a lot of anxiety, expectedly, of who was going to be allowed to continue, the type of borrowings that other five colleges might be able to take, or getting contracts and taking over some of those faculty positions in the administration too. Tell me, as you look back at those decisions, at the shrinking, at the 50% positions that were kept or 75% positions, at the early retirements, what was going on through your mind? How successful was that? You wished it had been done in a different way. Well, let's explain to your audience. When you say shrinking, Hampshire is going to be a college of about 600 students this September. Out of 1,400? Uh, out of 1,200. Uh, it's going to be about half the size. And the reason is a class of 295 graduated in May. And we're not taking, except for those 15 I mentioned, a full class in September. So it's half the size. And a college of 600 is not unusual in this country, but it needs fewer faculty and fewer administrators. So how did we manage that? Through the good graces of the other four colleges in our five-college program and through the generosity of our own faculty, we were able to not have to fire or lay off any faculty members. Some were ready to retire and took retirement. Others took leaves of absence to find other things that they wanted to do, also to teach elsewhere. And the four colleges, Amherst, Smith, UMass, and Mount Holyoke, have as visiting professors, 19 Hampshire College faculty members. So that means a couple of things that are good for them and good for the college. First of all, it keeps those 19 faculty members teaching and teaching in the Valley. Second, it makes their classes and their teaching available to Hampshire students because Hampshire students can take courses at the colleges where the, their teachers that they were familiar with now are teaching. The other thing that's possible is advising, and Hampshire College because of its student-centered program, an important part of what a student does is get advice from faculty members. And because the other four colleges permit their faculty to do what they call consulting outside the college, almost all of those 19 faculty members are going to be available as advisors to Hampshire students. And Hampshire will pay them a stipend to do that. So this five-college cooperation has been an extraordinary benefit to Hampshire as it's temporarily downsized. And I say temporarily because what Hampshire wants to do 
is as soon as it can is attract the students to grow back to the size it wants to be, which is about 1,100 to 1,400 students. So you're seeing the future of Hampshire as the same size that it was before this crisis, building back and reassessing its own mission. Over five years. And that will give an opportunity for some of those faculty members who are now teaching as visiting professors at the other colleges to come back to Hampshire if what they're teaching makes sense for the future Hampshire four years from now, if that's something they want to do. So the benefit that Hampshire has from being part of five college cooperation is really meaningful in this special case. It's been very painful to lose faculty members from the campus, but some of them are retaining offices on the campus so that they have a place to come to. The more difficult part for some of us is the fact that there were non-faculty members whose positions had to be terminated because, again, the college was shrinking in size. That number, while being 24, is much smaller than we originally anticipated. And some of those people have done this, again, voluntarily, saying it's time for them to retire. They've been there a number of years. 24 people is a lot to have to lay off, but it's fewer than we had expected originally when we talked about downsizing. Mm. So there's some relief there. I want to ask you about the student body, the, the behavior, the reaction, the engagement of the student body in this past year. And I want to ask you also, Ken, about what is expected of this student body. You talked about maybe about 15 students of the class of 2019. You said you played with that number that are actually going to be starting for that class that had already been accepted. If I'm not getting it wrong, and I might, the number was hoping to be higher. Did students decide not to come? And is it likely also that from other classes, classes that have already been enrolled, students might seek transfer because they are unhappy or unlikely to be in a college that is experiencing this crisis? Is that 600 number that you are playing with a stable number, or is this a number that is speculative? It's not speculative. It's our best estimate based upon what the students have told us they want to do and based upon the pre-registration that takes place on the campus every spring, students registering not only for the classes and courses they want to take, but also for the residences where they want to live. And so we think 600 is a good number, and it may even be more. Again, that's half the size that it was this past year. It's always been true that Hampshire's involve students in trying to help Hampshire know what it is and what it can become. So we're hoping that when the students return to campus soon this fall, they'll be participating, too, in in the remaking of Hampshire College as it considers what it's to become. Mm. I use the word remaking because when Hampshire was being planned, its early plans were in a book called The Making of a College, and it was written by Franklin Patterson, the first president, and Charles Longsworth, who is the first employee of the college and the second president. And it laid out the plans for the college, some of which have come to pass. And some others may have been a little unrealistic, but and we can talk about that. One of them was the assumption back in the 60s that colleges would not have to provide their own funds for financial aid because the federal government had said it was going to do that. That had not been proved true, and it wasn't true by the time Hampshire opened. So Hampshire had to be, in terms of financial aid, very much a conventional college, and it has always been ever since. As I said earlier, Hampshire was the product of planning back in the 50s by a group of four college faculty members who were supported by the Ford Foundation to try to talk about how they could cooperate better and came up with the idea that there should be a new college, which 
they then called New College, and that was the New College plan. The New College became Hampshire College. But in deciding what Hampshire College should be, the college reached out way beyond itself to involve academics and non-academics from around the country who were interested in, in what higher education is and could become. And that's also going to be educating Hampshire College over this next year. Hampshire is not going to just look to itself, look to its own faculty and its own trustees and its own students, but look to others who are interested in higher education who can come and talk with us about what higher education needs to be for the future. One of the main issues looming in the landscape, Ken, is accreditation. Because of the crisis, because of the promises, because of the challenges, there is the big question, will the accreditation continue? Will it take place? Talk to me about that. I think your listeners understand that there are regional accrediting agencies that evaluate colleges and universities all over the country. And in New England, it's an organization whose acronym is NECHI, New England Commission for Higher Education. They became very concerned in the last year because a number of the colleges that they accredited suddenly decided to close or were forced to close. And so when Hampshire College came forward and said, we have financial problems and we are going not to take a class next September, they wanted us to tell them more. And they invited us to report to them about why we should not be put on probation or lose our accreditation. And we prepared a report in May and then spent an hour and a quarter with them on May 30th at their retreat talking about our plans for Hampshire College. As a result of that report and that meeting, they said to us, we will give you six months now to show us that you can do what they say you're going to do, come back and report to us in November. And we are not going to make any decisions about Hampshire now until November. So we are optimistic that when we see them in November, we will have made enough progress in fundraising and in admissions raising students so that we can show them that we are going to be a place where our students who are admitted will be able to get a degree when they graduate. I want to say something also. You talked about the class of 2019. That's the way we talk about it. At Amherst College, the students who come in the class of 2019 are numbered by being called the class of 22? 22 or 23. 23. At Hampshire, they would be the class of 2019. Because Hampshire doesn't assume that we know when a student is going to graduate from Hampshire College. The original planning, and it continues to this day, was that a student could take four or five or six years if that student wanted to do some things off campus and elsewhere to bring back to the campus and graduate later, or could do it sooner. You are not constrained to uh, remain in the college for four years. You can move through it faster. You can move through it in three years if you want to do that. And two things will happen if you do. A, you save time, and B, you save money. So that's another part of the message that Hampshire College needs to get out to its public, that many students have come through Hampshire College. When you tote up what it costs to go to Hampshire College, it isn't tuition room and board times four. It's tuition room and board times three. That's a big discount. And yet you get your full education because you work at it, and you work over the summer, you work very hard at doing this, and faculty help you do that. How much does it cost to go to Hampshire College for three years or for a year? Well, that's another problem that not only does Hampshire have, but all of private higher education have. The nominal price when you add up tuition and room and board is something approaching $60,000, but most people don't pay that. And not only do students who qualify for financial aid often not pay that, 
but there are merit scholarships given by private colleges now that are probably a major problem for all these private colleges. The president of Skidmore College on a public radio station a couple of months ago was talking about merit scholarships, and he said they're neither meritorious nor they're scholarships. They are discounts that an auto dealer would give you to buy his car, knowing you're going to buy the car anyway. These are discounts given to students who otherwise would come to the college anyway and be able to afford it. They're given discounts to induce them to come. How you deal with that is a problem that Hampshire alone can't solve, but it distorts the pricing of higher education. It doesn't distort the value, but the pricing. In a way, it's unfair to everybody at the college, and it also makes it hard to plan. So students qualify for financial aid at Hampshire College, and they get it, and they get federal loans, and they get grants, and just as they do at other colleges. We're coming to the end of our conversation, and I have... Ken, one more question. But I want to proceed it by telling you that I adore Hampshire. I have been a professor in this area for 25 years. And just as you said it, some of my best students have been from Hampshire. I admire their creativity, their imagination, their passion. And also, I admire their rebelliousness and their feistiness, which comes with a package, and it should, in a young person that is trying to figure out what is good for her or him. I also admire enormously what you're doing, having become the captain of a boat that is in the middle of a big storm. And I would like to conclude by asking you, maybe facetiously, if you can imagine a landscape in this area, the Pioneer Valley, or a landscape in American education without Hampshire, what would that landscape be? It would be a poorer place. People in Amherst, where Hampshire is located, who have no connection to the colleges, say Hampshire is a valuable asset to our community. But more than that, Hampshire represents the cutting edge of ideas in higher education, and it wants to continue to be able to do that. So without a Hampshire college challenging the conventional wisdom about higher education, I think all of higher education would be poorer. So that's something I don't want to imagine happening. And what is next for you? Would you be fit to continue in a position similar or tangential at Hampshire? Are you eager and ready to see your successor come in? I've been involved in Hampshire College for over 50 years, since 1966. And I'm committed to stay supportive of Hampshire College. The next president of Hampshire College is certainly going to want to need some help, and I'm prepared to be as strong an advisor for that person as I can possibly be and available to that person whenever that person wants me to be. I appreciate enormously you coming to In Contrast and talking candidly about Hampshire, an institution that is crucial to all of us. Thank you, Ken Rosenthal. Thank you very much, Ivan. Hampshire College is in a woefully existential crisis that happens to be taking place during a perfect storm. Large market factors are shrinking the overall offerings of the American higher education industry. Less students are applying to more schools. Paying exorbitant tuition prices is prohibitive to a large number of families. The result is that institutions with less cachet are becoming vulnerable, seeing a decrease in applicants and a reduction of cash. Being competitive in an environment where branding is essential is tough. Hampshire is among them. In the last couple of decades, Hampshire has made some impetuous, inadvisable decisions. 
along the way, a rowdy faculty and student body have sometimes gotten themselves lost in the type of delusion of grandeur chronically affecting higher education, including the sense that the act of questioning power is in itself a strategy to assert it. In other words, with foresight, the current quagmire could have been averted, at least in part. As I wrote in the Hampshire Gazette, I have had dozens, maybe hundreds, of Hampshire students. They are savvy, even feisty, thriving in the art of disconnecting the dots in order to reconnect them anew. Their most typical trait is, well, being atypical. I love them in part because I got my own undergraduate degree from a Mexican public university much like Hampshire, in which we had no grades and other such rigid structures. I was regularly invited to test authority. I learned that if we aren't rebellious in our youth, we've missed a crucial step in our education. Of course, while a student, I was also frequently unhappy, convinced I was being miseducated. I wanted my teachers to be more systematic. I wanted from them guidance as well as freedom. At some point in the serendipitous journey that is life, I too became a teacher, trying to emulate in the classroom some of the patterns of my own restless education. Frankly, all these years later, I still can't quite explain what the mystery is that happens inside the classroom. To say it is all about knowledge is to state the obvious. In truth, knowledge emerges haphazardly in stints and stretches. What might generate insight in one student might bore another one to death. Teaching is about being humble and alert so as to welcome surprise and is also about providing the necessary tools for people to think clearly, persuasively, and in original ways. I feel I fail miserably when a student hands in a project that might as well have been done by someone else in the exact same way. Where's the uniqueness? Students aren't clones. I have also collaborated many times with superb Hampshire teachers. The announcement that Hampshire would only accept a minuscule number of its 2019 freshman class is a symptom of distress. Who knows if 2020 will be different? The college has also announced layoffs. Understandably, students have been up in arms occupying buildings. The faculty feels sidelined, and the staff, the weakest of all links, sees itself as a liability. Still, this isn't a eulogy. With Ken Rosenthal at the helm as interim president, we must be hopeful. As he suggested in his interview, the answer to the conundrum will actually be found in Hampshire being unconventional, that is, in looking at options in alternative, unusual ways. Whatever solution emerges, the challenge is to make it long-term. Time, which is shrinking rapidly at the moment, is the best bet. The college is about to turn 50. In the lifetime of a school like this, that amounts to adolescence. Will it make it to adulthood? All of us are rooting for it. Its future is ours, too. We all need its nonconformist stance.
to see illustrations of our In Contrast guests by Burns Maxey and for previous episodes including our interviews with philosopher Martha Nussbaum, historian William Taubman, and authors Jennifer Acker and Minjing Lee, visit our website at nepr.net. Help spread the word about In Contrast by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. Our production assistants include Emma Schwartz and Ethan Bakuli. Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Vosey. I'm Ilan Stavans. Thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions.